Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. This week, Madeline Davies talks to Dr. James K.A. Smith about his new book, On the Road with St. Augustine, published by Baker Publishing, available from the Church Times bookshop for £10. The book says that it offers the reader an invitation to journey with an ancient African who will surprise you by the extent to which he knows you. Smith contends that Augustine can make Christianity plausible again for those who've been burned. James K.A. Smith's previous books include You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit, and How Not to Be Secular, reading Charles Taylor. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is um, what you think your average person knows about St Augustine. Because um, mm. if I think about it, I'm, I'm not very well read on St Augustine, yes. but I would think of, think about Make Me Chase, but not now. Yes, right, and, right, right. Uh, kind of about our hearts being restless until they find yes. it. But, but, Really, that was my basis. When sure. I reading the book. Sure. What do you think the average person knows? That's a great question, <laughs> and I wonder if there's any differences between the states and England in that regard as well. So, it, there's kind of a range. So my my hunch is that actually, if people know anything about Saint Augustine, their picture is probably overwhelmingly negative, <laughs> and it might be because they think of him as you know the inventor of the doctrine of original sin. Uh, they will think of him as um, the champion of celibacy and the generator of a, a particularly narrow doctrine of uh, sexual ethics and things like that. Um, and so I, I think, unfortunately, they also probably have an impression of him as this like just utter dogmatist. Um, and, and that's a lot of what I'm trying to pierce through in a way. The other thing that intrigues me, though, is that Augustine continues to live in the university curriculum. Yes. So if you, if you then thought of another kind of public who've gone to university, um, they maybe have run into the confessions uh, in a, in a cor- history course. Or Interestingly, Augustine is still read in writing courses because in some ways he's looked at as you know, the... the proto-memoirist, and I I think that's a way that he continues to sort of be run into, which I think is a much better way than the kind of caricatured version of it. Yeah. Yeah. And if there was kind of specific misunderstanding that you wanted to pierce in the book, what do you think that would... Yeah, that's a great question. I think I want people to realize how, in contrast to that picture of Augustine as the sort of dogmatist, angry... Uh, I actually think when you really s- spend time with Augustine, he is remarkably vulnerable, humble, and very much uh, uh, imagines himself as a co-pilgrim with people, rather than sitting up on this dais, you know, sort of announcing and denouncing. He's Augustine is much more the kind of person who imagines himself on a level with people who are looking for meaning and is sort of joining them on the way and inviting them to join him on the way. And interestingly, that comes up a lot in his preaching. So we have so many, we have, you know, books and books of Augustine's sermons, and it really emerges in the way that he preaches. There's there's a kind of democracy of access, and, and he knows that this in the face of God, there's this leveling reality. And I, I think that's a big part of what I want to invite people to see. Uh, Augustine's kind of this, he's the first existentialist, I think. Uh, 
and so I hope that sort of recreates it yeah. from the caricature. Yeah. And who do you think you were writing for? Because something that interested me when I started reading mm. is that I don't think you were necessarily writing for a Christian audience, and so sometimes it comes across if you've dismissed Christianity or you've never thought about it, here could be a route in. So were you writing for kind of a completely... Yeah, I was. I mean, that was, in a way, this is probably the first book that I've written with that kind of intentionality. But it is true that part of what intrigues me about Augustine is, I do think, if you, if you retrieve this kind of Augustine the existentialist, right, all of a sudden he becomes this very interesting character who maybe offers a vision of Christianity that, that feels very different than staid rejected forms that feel closer to us right so it's sort of his strangeness so yeah the book is really meant i, I don't know how likely it is that a non-christian picks up a book with saint augustine in the title but um the cover is very pretty so but there's this there is the hope that this is the kind of book that somebody who has been kind of exhausted by thinking about the alternatives and trying the alternatives Augustine has lived that person's life. Like, that's what the Confessions is for. And so I really, I, I really hope that some of those readers will find it. And that the book doesn't assume that people already agree with Augustine. That, at least that's what I was going for. I hope that came yeah, through. for sure. Yeah. And obviously you sort of discovered him in sort of graduate studies. Yeah. I was wondering what you feel about whether we learn very much about the Church Fathers in church. So for somebody who is a Christian, I guess there's sometimes a perception, my own background is more low church mm -hmm. Protestant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, As is mine, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Is that kind of a fair comment to make that perhaps you learn less about? Um, what do you miss out by not engaging yes. with that yes. tradition? I, I think um, one of the great travesties of sort of late modern forms of Christianity in the West is in their desire to be quote-unquote relevant and in their desire to be au courant they they act as if the church is as old as the youth pastor do you know what I mean like there's the, it's it is a it is a Christianity without memory without heritage it, and it's often coupled with what we call a primitivism where on the other hand, they also just think they leap back to the first century of the Bible and, you know, as if they're not indebted to a tradition. So, yeah, I think it's a great tragedy, really. And it's something that has been part of my own pilgrimages. It's almost like you start learning about these ancient voices and sources and wisdom, and you're at first you're almost a little bit resentful that nobody told you about this before. Like, how, how why have you been hiding this? Now, that said, I am encouraged that I think even in a number of Protestant streams, uh, there has been a new kind of movement of uh, what in the 20th century was called resourcement, right? Retrieval, a, a, a kind of remembering of pre-modern sources. And I actually think the post-modern moment propels us to reconsider the pre-modern. And so I hope that that's part of what's happening. And there's a number of sort of trends in spiritual disciplines that almost by nature push people back to those ancient sources. So, yeah. And you, you sort of um, touch on areas where you disagree. Um, yeah, with right, and right. And you talk about perhaps following him means to disagree with him yes. occasionally. Yes, um, So are there a couple of areas that you could bring out here where you maybe diverge or think he went yeah. to extremes or got it wrong? Yeah, so I, I have... I'm not trying to just mimic or parrot Augustine, right? 
I think the best way to be a faithful co-pilgrim with Augustine is to actually receive him in such a way that you read him against himself. So to give an example, I think the way Augustine thinks about sex is stunted, uh, uh, short-sighted, kind of anti-creational and anti-finitude. Um, I think there's a deep biography to that. I think because that was, as, as we know, sort of one of Augustine's weakest points. The only way he could imagine a kind of faithfulness uh, was just saying no. And he never came around. Whereas I think in the best Augustinian spirit of what he does in so many other areas, you can come back and redeem and retrieve and reconstruct that and receive it as the gift that it's supposed to be. So that, that would be one area. It kind of came up recently because I was interviewing Nadia Bowles Weber. Oh, yeah. A book on the sexual reformation. And there was a quote which was pulled out by a lot of interviewees where she talks about, uh, in quite crude language, what Augustine said and then said the church encased this yeah, yeah. rubbish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess yeah. that did prompt quite a debate about um, whether that was fair. And right, whether, and right. Whether, if you truly looked into his theology of sex, he was. Yes. There are things that we could Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are even, there are threads that I think Augustine himself didn't weave that are, are there to be woven in. And um, I mean, I think the same uh, could be said about Augustine's view of women, right? So I don't think it does any service to pretend Augustine was some sort of enlightened, you know. On the other hand, what you can do is you can show why, given Augustine's other commitments, that in fact it would be a sort of faithful Augustinian legacy to revise the specifics of how he thinks about women. I mean, if you just think of, I mean, one example is the way he speaks of Monica, his mother, right? Who is as close to a star in the confessions as, I mean, sometimes rivaling God a little bit in, in the star power in the confession. And so that's quite a remarkable uh, um, role to play the interesting thread about Augustine's concubine, which is just all we know her as. Some have said, see, look how dismissive he is. He doesn't even name her. Whereas I, I really, truly think the best way to understand that is protection. Like, he's, he realizes he's famous. She's trying to live a faithful life, and he, he's still pained by this separation. And so the unnaming there is actually its own kind of deference and respect. So... Um, yeah, the part, probably what I most worry about is that people won't get past that caricature of Augustine as the sexual dogmatist. But um, that usually is not based on reading Augustine. Yeah. It's based on a sort of a hearsay. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the quotes I really wanted to pull out is um, that you talk about the ways in which the 20th century was Augustinian. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, could good. you explain? I know that's a huge yes. um, question, but what did you mean yes. by that? So this is, this is a real subtext that, that is part of what has intrigued me in the whole project. If you think of, let's just do it this way. In the middle of the 20th century, existentialism is one way that we name this new sort of sense that humans are on a quest for authenticity, right? Mm -hmm. To find yourself. And, and that starts finding manifestation in film, in novels, in plays, in literature. And, and we think of people like Sartre and Albert Camus and things like that. Well, what's interesting then is if you start tracing the actual philosophical and conceptual roots of that, a lot of it goes back to a German philosopher named Martin Heidegger. 
And Heidegger published this sort of bombshell of a book in 1927 called Being in Time. The reason why that should interest us is, is almost all those concepts of authenticity, the search, answering a call, seeking, you know, our being, trying to find ourselves, all of that finds its way back to Augustine's being in time. And we now know that actually all of those concepts that, that we read in Being in Time first emerged when Heidegger was lecturing on Augustine's Confessions in 1919 to 1923. So there is this, there's like a direct undercurrent of influence from Augustine on to then this ongoing conversation. Interestingly, Camus also did his dissertation on Augustine. Jacques Derrida wrote on Augustine. I mean, there's all these kinds of threads of, of um, both philosophical culture and pop culture that kind of relate to it. So that's what it, I think that's very interesting, that in a way, Augustine has been this underground river that's been flowing underneath us, and we haven't realized how much we've been sort of drawing on that well um, although obviously it's been a selective inheritance in that regard. And when you talk about the potential for him to make Christianity plausible, yeah. Um, I guess, do you feel that before you were a Christian, if he had been your entry point, do you think that would have been true for you? Why, why do you think this kind of ancient figure could make Christianity plausible when I guess so much of our discussion around mission and evangelism is actually how difficult it is yes. in the 21st century. Yes. I think, I think the reason why someone like Augustine is believable is if people understand the particularity of his story. In other words, in, in many ways, I, I, when I'm in the States, I say Augustine was a Manhattanite. 1500 years before Manhattan existed. But, but this is true of all our cities of aspiration, London, uh, um, Rome, whatever it might be. There's a sense that Augustine, Augustine was not a goody two-shoes. Is, is that a phrase you use here? Augustine was not some prim and proper choir boy who, you know, made his way up from the cradle. He, he was a playboy. He was a hustler. He was a social climber. He had ambition for power and wealth and status and privilege and, and sexual domination in many ways. So I feel like because Augustine tried all of the things that we have tried and experienced their failure, their disappointment, that, that someone who has tried all of those other avenues could find somebody who's like, okay, well, he understands something of where I've been. And he's not just speaking from this, you know, sequestered experience or whatever. The, the other thing I'll say too is nobody can question the power of Augustine's intellect. Do you know what I mean? Like he's, if, if you need to know that Christianity doesn't mean kissing your brains goodbye, Augustine is a really, really good place to start, you know? And that's why I think his endurance within the university speaks to something about a kind of intellectual credibility. Um, that's important. That's, that's significant. I was really interested that you mentioned that, that one of the last things that he was working on was retraction. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could say something about whether that's something that we find particularly difficult today to actually look back on the body of work or even a sermon or positions that we held theologically and say, in retrospect, I was wrong. Have we always found that harder? Do you think it's particularly difficult? Today to I do think that. it's particularly difficult today, in part because it's, it's complicated, because on the one hand we have this sort of overwhelming narrative of 
progressive enlightenment, right? So we keep congratulating ourselves that we are so much smarter than everyone who's come before us. On the other hand, there's also something about kind of social media call-out culture right now that doesn't give us much room to repent. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you have to think the right thing and you have to have always have thought the right thing. And it's quite a notable stance of hubris, I think, and pride. And so when Augustine, at the end of his life, goes back through all of his works and basically says, I'm going to recount all the places I was wrong, um, I see that as an incredible act of humility. And it shows that he wasn't, uh, he, he, he could be his own critic. But I think that stance of humility ultimately comes from he knew that his value did not depend on being right. Do you know what I mean? Like it's ultimately his his confidence did not stem from how smart he was. It's it's why even his his sort of uh, uh, migration into the faith required him to be sort of humbled. In, in many ways, he had to come around and realize that his mother was right, and uh, that's a hard thing to swallow. But I think once he had done that, I think I still think that's something that would surprise people the most is how humble Augustine is. And and if and if anybody has a picture of Augustine that's not humble, I, again, I don't think they've really met Augustine in that sense. I do think that there's something about our current cultural moment where we can't let any chinks in our armor, intellectual armor, show. But Augustine. He's not depending on value from people seeing him as right. He's just trying to be faithful in that sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's related to what you said about the reaction that you expect when you do. Yes. And I think people are afraid of that. Yes. Partly. Yes. Um, I also wondered if you could say something about how important or significant it is that he was African. Um, and so we have a theologian in the UK called Sharon Prentice, and she recently brought out a book um, where she talked about all the saints who were not white mm. and the fact that we tend to depict them as looking yes. like us. Yes. Um, and yes. I was also thinking it in the context of um, there's a meeting um, this week between EU leaders um, who were talking about migration from Africa to yes. Europe and I thought that was really pertinent to the book. So yes, yeah, very much. Despite the fact that you think he's sort of universal, is it important that we acknowledge his origins in Africa? What I think is particularly interesting about that is so he is, in many ways, from the very beginning of his life, his experience is bicultural. And, and maybe kind of biracial would be another way of saying it, right? So he has an African mother and a Roman father, and he's living in the provinces in northern Africa. And I think that experience of a kind of two-ness, uh, uh, which creates a certain... Not instability, but there's a certain jostling of one's identity that comes with that, right? And uh, because that is from the very beginning of his childhood, he's sort of always an outsider. He kind of all, even, even as he accomplishes everything and he reaches the, the upper echelons of sort of imperial access in Rome and Milan, it doesn't take much for people to remind him that he's African. And yet then when he returns to Africa, he'll be suspected because he carries too much of Rome with him, right? And so he lives, he, he's a lot like immigrant uh, um, children who experience that sort of 1.5-ness, you know, they, they are almost not at home anywhere uh, because they have these homes in two places. And I think Augustine, that turns into a spiritual insight for Augustine, like that, that sort of exilic existence 
is for him also a metaphor of a lot of what it's like to be a person who's chasing after God, waiting for the kingdom to come, uh, and yet being here and, and knowing how to live in the midst of that. I think it's why he comes up with his famous distinction between two cities, the earthly city and the city of God. He knows what it's like to shuttle back and forth, to code switch, as it were, uh, between these different existences. And um, I think we, we can't underestimate how much his biographical experience in that kind of cultural and multicultural context becomes now the well that he's drinking from when he's doing his theology later on. Yeah, he's not uh, European. He's also not... There's, there's another way that people sort of lump Augustine with the Middle Ages. They think of him, you know, you sort of, oftentimes there's a pairing of Augustine and Aquinas. They're like a thousand years apart, right? And, and such different locations. And, and Augustine lives in late ancient Mediterranean culture. It's a very different world. I think that's another part that makes Augustine really interesting today. Yeah. It's why I, I suggest that he comes up with this notion of what we could call almost a refugee spirituality, right? He knows what it's like to experience that dislocation. Yeah. Something else that the book made me think about is, I guess, the place of confession in our churches. Um, mm. There was a recent piece in a Roman Catholic magazine um, which talked about the real decline in the sacrament of confession and how we once had queues, people queued up to confess, mm. and you don't see mm. that anymore. Um, mm. I wondered about yeah, the importance of personal confession in our churches and also for church leaders, should they be encouraged to make the sort of confessions that sort Augustine makes? Or do you have to have a boundary whereby if you confess everything, you're actually putting quite a burden on your congregation? Well, that's a good question. I mean, th this goes back to what I described as Augustine's vulnerability. I, I think he, he really errs on the side of giving us too much information. Um, and I, I think he knows the risks of that. But... Um, I think, again, for him, it's part of that leveling experience, right? Like, the, he doesn't imagine... He's a bishop, he, 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 and he understands that he has responsibilities, and, and there's power, even, that goes with that. But when you see in his preaching and in, and in Book 10 of the Confessions, there's this sense of, but all things considered, at the foot of the cross and before God, we are all equal, and here's how I continue to struggle. And I... I don't know. I um, I'm not ordained, so I don't know what's all at stake in it in such admission. But I do think it's actually a powerful witness, because then if somebody like you can look at Augustine and say, well, if a, if Augustine still struggles, <laughs> um, maybe there's hope for me too. I, and I I do think that's how Augustine imagines it. Um, his his confessions are written to move other people to undertake the same self-examination and so I think he kind of has to make himself vulnerable for that to work yeah. it can't be always saying you 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 he has to say I for it to work yeah yeah um, and just my final question was um, I guess this is often addressed to people who do have that restless wanderlust mm. going on mm. what about people who do not feel that they're on a quest they don't have a particularly restless heart they're not troubled by existential questions mm. and perhaps geographically they're very rooted and centered and they're not on the road what do you think St Augustine's message for them would be? It's a great question Is it okay to be at peace where you are and not? Yeah I mean let, can we, let's dig into this for a little bit so 
the question will always be, am I locating my peace somewhere sustainable? Right? So I think what, what Augustine would, would say is, okay, maybe I've reached this sort of stasis or I, I, I've, I've found a place where I'm content. Well, that could actually be the rest that so many people are aspiring for, right? And, and, and for Augustine, that, that in a way is the experience of the one who has truly ordered their loves well to God or whose loves have been ordered well to God. Because what that means then is you can sort of receive everything as gift and, and you can have this status of gratitude and, and contentment and there's rest and joy are so bound up with things through God's On the other hand, I think there's probably another version of stasis that is just the doldrums. Do you know what I mean? Like almost have, having given up. And uh, there, Augustine is going to be worried that actually what we need to do is sort of, there has to be a catalyzing of disruption, right? There has to be, some, some people should be more dissatisfied than they are uh, because they've settled. And I think what worries Augustine is that we can live lives on autopilot where we sort of settle for less than what we are made for. And um, that's probably actually a very common phenomenon. And my hunch is Augustine suspects that what pierces that sadly will often be brokenness and tragedy. Do you know what I mean? Like all, like you, you get sort of woken out of your slumbers uh, by the sky falling. And um, for Augustine, then the hope is that someone is there uh, to invite you down a different path at that time. That's a good question. I haven't, I need to think about that some more. Yeah, I think no. it's important. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. That was easy. <laughs> okay, great, great. Thanks for your interest. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.